Hi, I'm Beck. And I'm Khadija. We're members of the Stratford Festival Acting Company. And we are proud, happy, excited to bring you the Everyday Forum podcast, a Stratfest at home original showcasing thought-provoking discussions from the Stratford Festival's Me and Forum. The Stratford Festival's Me and Forum is like a festival within the festival designed to enhance and inform your experience through compelling discussions, exciting performances, and enlightening interactive multi-sensory events and workshops. Each episode will tell you who we're hearing from, the themes of the episode's featured forum event, and we'll also share some helpful definitions with you. We are here with a curated list of events from the 2023 season, bringing the stage to your home through this podcast. We're here to provide contextual insight. And to connect the conversation to wherever you might be. Or where you might be headed. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you chose. We're thrilled to facilitate this fusion of minds. Enjoy. Primacy. Do you what? hear that? Yeah. Primacy. I like her voice. Okay, I had to look that up. What does it mean? This is the first of when many words I had to look up. Mm. Because what I was really after was majoritarianism. Say it with me. Majoritarianism. majoritarianism. One more time, faster and more casual. Majoritarianism. majoritarianism is a political philosophy or ideology with the agenda asserting that a majority based on a region, language, social class, or other category of the population is entitled to a certain degree of prime primacy, primacy, primacy. Okay, in I'm society, <laughs> and has the right to make decisions that affect the society. Uh-huh. When I read that definition, I totally understand it, mm-hmm. but that word, I had to press pause. Yeah, there were, like you said, there were a few moments I had to press pause on this episode. One in particular was polymath, which sounds like it means something completely different than it actually is. Polymath is a person of great and varied learning, which I think the two Mm. folks on this panel are. Absolutely. Adam Gopnik and Rosalie Abella absolutely are polymaths. Justice. Justice. Rosalie Rosalie Abella. (laughs) <laughs> oh my sorry uh, she actually did correct i Adam. love that moment oh gosh sorry justice rosie <laughs> i think there's something really special in this chat one you know i have a soft spot for the ones that are two people going back and forth because mm-hmm. i find them really intimate mm-hmm. and i feel invited in and as oh you know the word i'm going to use is heightened mm-hmm. as heightened as a language can feel sometimes which i think is gorgeously ironic because that's how our work is sometimes described with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's heightened text. This is sort of heightened academic text balanced with such heartfelt humor and love, this this conversation. Yeah. And so I think it's uh, one to listen hard, but also the feels are in there. Yeah, you can tell that the folks on this in this chat are so deeply passionate about everything that they're talking about. And they're so well informed and aptly inspired. I love that 
Adam references Bayard Rustin Mm -hmm. as an inspiration for his novel and for his work at large, and particularly Bayard Rustin's three dance steps of liberalism. You'll hear more about this in the episode, but I would love to share these with you as a precursor. The first dance step is fair procedure. The second is open election. And the third is unhindered debate, which individually, absolutely necessary parts of society, I believe, but as a collective, feel like the fuel for any movement brings me to the triangle of needs, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. stronger, always stronger together. Mm -hmm. One thought I want to drop in the pool before we jump right in is pulled from a quote, but sort of a thought that I think can stand on its own. Liberalism, which I love that this conversation totally rocked what liberalism means Mm -hmm. or what I thought it meant Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, expands the definition, explodes the definition, buries parts that I was attached to. Anyway, liberalism depends on remedy and reform. Yes. 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 Yeah. I think that compounded with the fact that liberalism as a term, (laughs) (laughs) along with any other social classification, is often being redefined, sometimes a little too fast, sometimes not fast Mm. enough. And this conversation really highlights you know, the question of how we relate to one another when the language that we use to define ourselves and our perspectives is constantly changing. Ooh. Jump. Ready? Let's do it. Three, two, one. one. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Julie Miles, and I'm the Me Inform director. Uh, I've recently moved to a property that is in the country, and we are in awe of the wildlife, particularly the birds in our backyard, which are a thousand times better than anything you can watch on TikTok or Instagram or anything like that. Way better. And as I watch the hummingbirds zoom from branch to branch and the blue jays swooping in with a kingly presence and the curious and creative squirrels finding and hiding food for the winter, I'm reminded of the ancestral guardians of this land and its waterways, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Attawandaronk. And that it's on all of us to take care of this land that we are meeting on today in order to preserve it for generations to come. Today we're going to begin with introductions of our guests and then uh, we're going to have a fantastic discussion. We're so happy to welcome our two guests today back to the forum this year. Um, It's kind of the event we've been waiting for all year actually. Born in America, but raised in Canada, Adam Gopnik is an internationally recognized writer, essayist, lecturer, and most recently, a musical lyricist and libretto writer. His impressive body of work has received numerous awards in the US and Canada, and his two latest books, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventures of Liberalism, and The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery are also available at our theater store kiosk today, if you'd like to purchase one. and Adam will be signing books after today, today's event. The Honorable Justice Rosalia Bella was appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2004, where she served until her retirement in 2021. Among the countless awards and accolades for her work and advocacy, she also has 39 honorary degrees. I know her. Her work as an educator spans decades and borders, and in her retirement, she's currently the Samuel and Judith Pizar Visiting Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, a senior research scholar at Yale Law School, and distinguished visiting jurist at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. 
And she's also a mom. There you go. Awesome lady. <laughs> so I don't want to for... Uh, so the, I'm going to read what I wrote. So this is the conversation many of you have been waiting for all year. So please put your hands together and join me in welcoming to the Me Inform stage, Rosalie Abella and Adam Gopnik. So I've wanted to do this ever since I saw the movie Tar. And I, I guess I'm Kate. Am I Kate Blanchett? You're better than uh, Kate. <laughs> I do play the piano. Does that count? Um, she taught herself how to play the piano in order to. Play she was part. amazing. She's and the, amazing. Did you see the movie Tar? Remember She's that. So every single. I know we're going to talk about his book, honestly. <laughs> but every single review of Tar started with. Adam Gopnik is interviewing Kate Blanchett. You don't get to the review. They couldn't get past the fact that you were such a Play, brilliant interviewer. Inhabiting myself and playing myself. Only the things I'm... But people... Let's not go too deep into the tar weeds here. But the thing that people couldn't quite um, uh, understand or recognize is, is that that was a totally scripted part. It oh, was you're not kidding. A, uh, it was not improvised at all. So I was playing a character who bore my name, but bore very little resemblance to me because he was incredibly slow-witted. Um, <laughs> if you remember, the whole beginning of it, she talks about studying with Leonard Bernstein. And I did the, the math, not my strongest field in my head, but it was good enough to know that there was no way this character could be the age she was and do a study with Leonard Bernstein. So I went to the director, I was very little kind of actor, said, can you help me with this, Todd? Because it doesn't really make sense. And he just gave me this, um, Anthony Cimolino will understand this, this steady, opaque directorial look that directors give you <laughs> when they don't want to discuss it, when it's not your job to find that out. I said, okay. So I went back there and played dumb then for two days in Berlin. Oh, in it was amazing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it was scripted because I thought, how do we do that? No, it was, so, it, was, it was totally written and it was a sign of Kate Blanchett's genius. And I use that word she was, carefully. She was brilliant. That, um, uh, my wife Martha and I ran the lines of that scene, Martha playing the Kate Blanchett part, she's right over there. Um, uh, we were in London right before, before we flew to Berlin, and we said, this is never going to work because it's so boring, This all this exposition. And Kate Blanchett is such a genius actor that she found psychological motivation and, and nuances and italics and emphasis that were, that were not apparent on the page at all. And then it was... Uh, you know, I, I've said often about that. It was like playing tennis with, uh, you know, with uh, Serena Williams and knows exactly how to put the ball on your backhand and, and let you look like a tennis player as you do it. And that's what, that's what Kate did for me. Speaking of perfection. So we are, we are here to talk about this book. I want to say, first of all, what an honor it is to be on a platform with Adam Gopnik. I used to subscribe to a lot of magazines and then I found as time went on that I was being pretentious because some of them get piling up and I'm not going to tell you which ones they are because they shouldn't pile up they're for smart people but I just kept ignoring them and I held on to New York magazine for a long time uh, but in the end I stayed with the New Yorker and one of the reasons I think probably the most important reason I stayed with the New Yorker was because you had pieces in it every once in a while, and your writing 
Um, and then I learned to like Louis Menon <laughs> and Jill Lepore. But it was mostly looking in the index to find what you wrote. Because the range, I mean, the word polymath gets used um, too much in, in, a, in a very colloquial context. But Adam, you write about um, philosophy, you write about books, you write about movies, you write about people, you write about politics with, with a discernment, and, a, and, and you write like an angel. That is so unique. So when I got this book, um, I, I just gobbled it up. And I thought, this is everything. This is this is your whole being in this one plea for sanity um, to the world. And and P.S. Having met Martha Parker yesterday, Adam's wife, I understand where your sanity comes from. I mean, it was it was such a pleasure to to. This is a genuine, genuine love affair come true. And where's Tony Cimolino? Tony. I love your festival. Yes, <laughs> here. You're a very discerning person. Uh, <laughs> that's what they tell me now that I've retired. <laughs> so let's go back to this book, because there's something for everybody. You take us back to the 1500s, you take us back to Montaigne, to Voltaire, Rousseau, Hume, Locke, Hobbes, right up to the present. This is, this is a more sophisticated version of what people are preoccupied with now, what's happened to the liberalism most of us grew up with. Why did, what made you think you had to put this down, other than your walk with your brilliant Wait, daughter? Uh, well, the, the proximate cause was exactly that I, um, on the election night in 2016, I, my daughter Olivia, who um, Rosie has come to know and who makes of Rosie her absolute idol. She, um, Olivia believes that Rosie Abella combines analytic intelligence and emotional intelligence. Thank you all for coming. Not, <laughs> <laughs> what is there left to say? say? I mean, really. <laughs> but I wrote it for Olivia because she was at, at uh, uh, an age of, of self-discovery, and I wanted to tell her something about the values that mattered most to me in the world, and I wanted to do it. I failed completely, as parents always do, on that night. And I put my arm around her, and I tried to say encouraging and uplifting words, and she was on her phone texting her friends. Um, but I thought, I'm going to write a letter to Olivia about what I mean by liberalism. And of course, by liberalism, I don't mean the politics of the Liberal Party of Canada or of a particular party in, uh, or even a wing of a party in the United States. I mean the whole... Uh, and the word adventure came to my mind of liberal democracy that we all have taken part in, that you've uh, uh, ornamented and supported for so long. And I wanted to do two things particularly. One was that it seemed to me that most everything that I'd read about the history of liberalism in that broad sense, everyone emphasized the institutional procedural side of liberalism, the idea of rules that you follow, the idea of uh, constitutions that we make, which seemed to me to drain the drama out of liberalism. And so I wanted, that's when the phrase, the moral adventure came to my mind, because I wanted to talk about people who I loved and admired, who had been liberals in every sense, but whose lives, far from being spent in kind of cautious centrism, had been spent at the outer reaches of human possibility. 
uh, the book begins with um, John Stuart Mill, the great, uh, the greatest philosopher of liberalism, and many other things, and his relationship with Harriet Taylor, mm-hmm. a woman he fell in love with, a married woman with three children, whom he fell in love with passionately, and carried on a clandestine affair for a long time, exactly because she was married to a man that they both admired, and they had three children, and they didn't want the romantic adventure of 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 destroying that, and they made a kind of compact. And I wanted to call the book originally The Rhinoceros Manifesto because John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor would meet secretly in front of the rhinoceros cage at the London Zoo because they had the philosophical acuity to realize that nobody would be looking at the bench in front of the rhinoceros cage because everyone would be looking at the rhinoceros so they could carry on their conversation. And what's so extraordinary about John Stuart Mill and and, uh, Harriet Taylor is that together they wrote the two books that are kind of foundational to uh, modern liberal imagination on liberty, Mill's great book, uh, about the uh, the necessity for absolute freedom of speech and expression and religion, not not uh, bounded, and on the subjection of women, which is the greatest uh, manifesto for the absolute equality of women. That's one of the things that makes that such a great book, is that they weren't writing about conditional equality for women. The point was that women had the, the right uh, and the obligation to pursue absolute equality in every field, in in law, in literature, in, in economics. And no one had made that claim before. And they did all this work together in the course of their own compromised and clandestine love. And I found that incredibly moving as a story. These people were not cautious careerists. They were on the outer edge as I say, of experience. And I wanted Olivia and readers to understand that. Or Bayard Rustin is another hero in the book. Great black and gay activist who organized the March on Washington, made Dr. King's speech possible by doing that, and who was regularly excommunicated from the civil rights movement because he was gay and openly gay at a time when that was almost impossible in the world, much less within the context of the uh, the black church in America, which was the support of the civil rights movement. And so almost nobody remembered the name of Bayard Rustin. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write about him because despite being a pioneer and a, of enormous courage, both in uh, civil rights for um, African-Americans, but also for gay Americans, he was totally committed to what he called the three dance steps of, of liberalism, uh, Uh, fair procedures, uh, open elections, and um, unhindered debate. And he said those were the three things that were essential. And he was, and so they finally made a movie about him. I think in part, yes, in part, um, I will say, inspired by my uh, 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 heroizing him in this book, a wonderful new movie with uh, Domingo Coleman playing uh, Rustin. But even in the movie, they play back a little bit his uh, audacity and his courage because he carried on an ongoing debate with Malcolm X, who's now an idealized figure, because he thought that Malcolm was a, a separatist and was a, and that the whole future of black America lay in building coalitions. Not at all unlike, we were talking yesterday, Rosie, about uh, um, Zionist and anti-Zionist strains right among, among Jewish progressives. Anyway, so I wanted Olivia to meet these people and realize these people were not... Um, uh, cautious people as opposed to uh, and insufficiently radical, that they were heroic. And at the same time, part of their heroism was their embrace of an understanding of the necessity of building co- broad coalitions of unlike people to make essential change. The other thing I wanted to do was to write uh, a book that would be as 
immaculately as I could make it, uh, fair to and accurate about the critiques of liberalism. So there's a chapter called mm -hmm. Why the Right Hates Liberalism, and another and why chapter the left called Why hates. the Left Hates Liberalism. And I wanted those chapters to be immaculate in the sense of saying a, a right-winger or a, a radical, a leftist who read it, couldn't say, that's not the critique. And they'd say, well, that's true, and that's the critique. And I thought that that was both essential for the integrity of the book, but also, uh, in a more Machiavellian way, as a demonstration of the advantage of the liberal temperament, that is, that we extend our understanding to people who fundamentally disagree with us about things. So it was a, it was a complicated form of one-upmanship in, in doing it. And I will say that in the, in the many responses to the book, um, the thing that I did feel strongly was that though many leftists and conservatives reacted angrily to the book. All they did was reproduce the arguments that were in the, that were in the book already without responding uh, to the rebuttals. And I will conclude this little description of the book by saying that the thing I am proudest of, my kids aside, in life is that this book um, has been translated now into the languages of pretty much every country that's on the embattled front lines of liberal democracy. It's in Swedish, it's in Polish, it's in Hungarian, it's in Brazilian, Portuguese. And so whatever its merits and demerits in the countries where the things we take for granted, that is the foundations of liberal democracy, are under the greatest threat. And of course, it was published in the United States, the country where it's under the greatest threat of all. Uh, uh, the book has had uh, has had some life, so that's that's why I wrote it, and that's what it's about. So it you started with Mill and Taylor, which was fascinating. I did not know the story about Harriet Taylor and that she had been the muse that encouraged him. To, she took him. You you said she turned him into a mensch. Yes, she did. Which was really interesting. But then you you put another couple in. Right. You talked about. Um, George Eliot. George Eliot and J.H. Lewis. Yes. And, and Lewis. And that was interesting because what it showed, you didn't talk about the politics of the time. No. These were writers who were changing the discourse of their times through words, yes, exactly. through books. And George Eliot, you said Middlemarch was, was the great book. I have to say, I thought Daniel Deronda, which most people don't <laughs> talk about, was even more interesting because she had a Jewish character in there, so she picked up even more threads. But the courage of these women at the time, which you talked about, I mean, before Barbie, <laughs> <laughs> to live with the men they wanted to live with, despite social convention and the laws at the time, uh, Adam, until I would say the 1970s in Canada, were that women had no rights, none. Like, at law, the husband and wife were one person. It was the husband, and she couldn't make contracts, and she couldn't own property. For, so for these two women, Harriet Taylor and George Eliot, to be so openly who they were was breathtaking. And, and I think you're right, the heart of modern liberalism. But one of the things that I thought of as, as I was listening to you now and as I read the book, I had no difficulty reading the book, understanding what your message was, what you were trying to say, and why it was so crucial. When I'm in the United States, I and I read what you write, I think every single term you wrap your, your hope around is contested. Liberalism is contested. 
I don't even know what the word left means anymore. When we were growing up, it was called the mainstream. And then suddenly the world moved to the right, right. and we were suddenly left. But it doesn't mean anything. I don't know what democracy means. In the United States, it means majoritarianism and in so many other countries. And rule of law, as you said, it was procedural. But I don't like the term rule of law because Nazi Germany was under the rule of law. And so was segregation. And so was apartheid. So how do you, you're a great believer in communication. You talk about liberalism as the sharing of debate, um, trying to persuade. What do you do when there is an unwillingness to listen and respond? And so what happens is liberals, let's hear their side. I call it the, uh, the Chamberlain approach to conversation. Let's appease. And the other side is saying, screw this, we're not interested in what your point of view is because we they have a, a hegemonic sense of truth and it's theirs. So how do you create consensus about the key terms that define the debate around liberalism when there's an unwillingness on, on the right? I, I mean, I'm using the term. There's an unwillingness on the part of those who are individualists and see no sense of community, which is at the heart. Compassionate community is at the heart of your thinking. How do you bring them into this conversation when life is fine, thank you, and they're simply not interested? Well, one of the things that's fascinating about the rise of authoritarianism in America is that it's rising at a time, grosso modo, of peace and prosperity. Now, there's enormous social problems in the United States ranging from uh, the omnipresence of gun violence and gun massacres to growing social inequality and so on. But it's not a country that is in the kind of crisis that one thinks of Germany in 1932 or Italy in the 1920s. Um, and yet authoritarian uh, movements are underway. My own view of it, Rosie, is that, that that's kind of the default. Sorry, justice, Rosie. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Justice. Just, I know we're, we're normally justice. on a first, but we're in a crowd. <laughs> um, you notice I wore my Légion d'honneur, so I would be, have to be called Do you know what? Légionnaire. I was going to tell Martha that he's got a, 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 a dry cleaner's mark on his, on his lapel. Is that, a, is that the Légion d'honneur? Yes. Good. Yeah. Wow. So you have to call me Légionnaire, Adam. Oh. Um, I can't get one because it wouldn't show on my outfit. No, no, it wouldn't, too. No. You would, okay. you're, you're quite beyond it, need, the need of... Uh, the small tokens of other people's, other countries' esteem. Um, no, I'm not. not. I am not. <laughs> so if there's Actually, anybody we here from any other country. Actually, we were talking outside, and, and uh, uh, Justice Abella has 41 honorary degrees, and I have two. And I said, oh, wow. And she said, well, you have a bright future ahead of you. <laughs> so I want to tell you, my husband had four. And what he used to say when people said, he used to tell the story of Hank Aaron, who had a brother, Bobby, who also played. Good, good ball player. Good ball player. He had like 40 home runs. Apparently, right. I don't know anything about this. But his Tommy, it was Tommy, not Tommy. Bobby. And and Hank had hundreds. So seven hundred and thirty-five. Bobby used to say. <laughs> Bobby used to say to people. Uh, together we have <laughs> yes, seven exactly. other. And my husband used to say, together we have 45 honorary degrees. So. Yes, that used to be the line to what brother pairing in the history of the National Hockey League has scored the most goals? And people say Peter and Frank Mahovlich or uh, Bobby and Dennis Hall. And the answer is, is Wayne and Keith Gretzky. Wayne has 850, <laughs> Keith has zero, right? <laughs> but I don't have any paper clips for well, my I will lapel. Give you, I will, so, okay. I, um, 
what were, were we talking were about? We? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, oh, so America right now. So how do we how do we find common ground? So what I was going to say is two things I think are true. One is that the mistake we make is to think of liberal democracy and the open societies in which all of us have had the enormous good fortune to grow up. Your family fled Europe um, in search of it. My family got out one step ahead of the Cossacks, uh, first to America and then to and then blessedly to Canada. Um, the, the default condition of humankind is not liberal democracy. The default condition of humankind is to live under some kind of authoritarian rule. One of the things that's always amazing about coming back home here to Stratford is to uh, is that Shakespeare is a is a child of that truth, right? Because he grew up in a time when a violent civil war between Protestants and Catholics in his own country, and he came to value social peace and order more than almost any single thing, because he was so acutely aware of what happened when social, when social peace was broken and people were literally torn apart on the scaffold uh, in, in disputes about uh, religious beliefs that seem to us so minute now, we can hardly believe that people would have been glad, willing to kill each other over them. So I, I'm a pessimist in that sense, Rosie. I think that we, that's the default condition of mankind is some kind of gangster government, some kind of authoritarian rule, and that the struggle, the moral adventure to move towards uh, open societies is one that will always be renewed. So when people say, why is there a crisis of liberalism right now? What I always respond is say, liberalism is a crisis. It's always in crisis because there will always be powerful forces, not just built in, and if I can use an old fashioned expression, in the human soul that strive for the simplicity of the authoritarian solution that strive to end the anxiety of living in an open society by finding some closed dogmatic solution to our, our problems that try to deal with all the things that are troubling and new for us uh, by ruling them out. Uh, and so I think that's, that's part of the responsibility of, of liberals in this broad sense that it takes in conservatives and social Democrats and all of us who engage in this, in this adventure. Um, so in that sense, we have to accept that kind of pessimism and accept that we'll always be uh, battling. The situation in the United States right now is so extreme, I think, in part uh, because, uh, not so much because we've, we've lost that, that common ground, but because we no longer have a common language that we can turn to, yeah, that we can, that we can turn to, that, uh, that we respond to. And somehow the risks of, uh, of anarchy, the risks of, um, of violence have been, have been largely eliminated. That was one of the things I think that was in some bizarre sense helpful about January 6th in the United States is you realize, oh yes, behind authoritarian and rhetoric lies violent violence itself and violent action. And so I think that those are the things that you have to, all you can do is make the case and gamble that in the long run, a majority of, of, of your countrymen will understand it. I'll just add one, those are kind of overarching issues. I'll add one simple and more specific issue that speaks to questions of jurisprudence. You know, the United States suffers from terrible democratic deficits. We are not, uh, we are not a democratic country in that way. Donald Trump, in plain English, can never win. I will say this uh, 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 categorically, could never win a majority of the voters of the United States. But because we have a system that's designed to give undue weight to rural and uh, small state voters, rightly or wrongly, he's in the game because of it. And we, and we have a, 
a Senate that's not that's not well designed democratically. So I think we tend to have uh, accepted all those democratic deficits as essential and how one goes about fixing them. And I'll, I'll be provocative with you and say one of the other problems we have is that we have a, a Supreme Court for life with lifetime appointments, which means that when you get six justices on one side of the of a partisan or five, then you are, uh, you have almost no, liberalism depends on remedy and reform. Say, well, this is wrong and I disapprove of it, but if we work hard in a nonviolent fashion, we can remedy and reform it. When you have a situation like that, where you have uh, a Supreme Court majority that's able to and willing to dictate a policy that by rights should belong to a democratic majority, you are moving in very dangerous directions. Should the American Supreme Court be enlarged? So how, how can because it be? Because if, I mean, now we're, we're moving off, but, and, and, and you've skipped over so many wonderful <laughs> issues. Uh, I'll come back to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a, you started with immigrant. There is a wonderful play called The Melting Pot. Yes. Israel Zangville. Israel. When, 1906, 1909, yes. I can't remember. And it's one of these really adorable stories about a Jewish immigrant who comes to the United States, and he's a composer, falls in love with a Russian woman who's not Jewish, his uncle goes crazy, and the theme of the book is, yes, but we're all American, we're all going to fuse together. He like a great symphony where the strings play with the which brass. Is exactly, did, which right. is exactly what ha- he right. finds out that her father was in charge of the program that killed his parents. I mean, it's so hokey. But in the end, he says, we are all one, we are, we are fused together. So the theory of the melting pot, where there is no identity, if you are an American, we are all American. We are colorblind. We're not black, white. We're not Jewish, whatever. Uh, we're not Christian, even though I think there's a, a religious dominance in the United States today that feels unhealthy to me. I think that notion of the individual combined with the political origins of the United, it's in the DNA of the Mm -hmm. United States. They left the craziness of George III to start a country where government was there. It was libertarian. Mm -hmm. I have the right as an individual to do whatever I want. Government can't tell me what to do, which has led to a theory of equality, which is that everyone is the same, which is nonsense. It has led to an anti-regulatory approach, which means government, you can't tell me whether to have a gun or not. You can't, now with the court, you can't tell me whether or not I can correct the environment or not. So it is so libertarian in social areas. And unless you get past that, plus the fact that you have one political party saying this is the way we want it, and another political party saying the way you and I would, can we talk about this? And they don't want to talk about it. So look at Canada now as a contrast. Our country started with two distinct groups, and you make the, you yes. make the claim that, Baldwin that, and that, right. that, that difference is at the heart right. of Canada. So French and English, equal but different. Mm. We are the greatest proponents of multiculturalism in the world because we say to people, you come into the mainstream based on your difference. If you've got some theory of who you are that collides with our core national values, forget about it. We do have core national values and we're not embarrassed. But you come in, we have hyphenated Canadians. Right. You can be Italian Canadian, Greek Canadian. Ukrainian Canadian. So right. we have a theory where you are allowed to be 
who you are. So our theory of equality is accommodating differences. So you have a theory of equality in the United States, which is that nobody's different, which is which obliterates blacks, women, gays, because it's just nonsense. You have a theory of constitutionalism, which is that the government has a very limited role to play. And then getting to your last point, you have a theory of democracy, which is there's no checks and balances, although in the book you say there is checks mm -hmm. and balances. There is only the will of the people. And I think to understand democracy as only being what the people want and not understanding that it's the checks of the media, the checks of the courts, and why is there dysfunction in the United States? Because the legislature is bad, the courts are bad, there are no checks and balances, nobody know you can have conversations, Adam, but if everybody's in their own silo, the people watching Fox are not interested in what they're saying on CNN. The people who read the Wall Street Journal don't care what the, what the New York Times said. So there's no, there's no national conversation that's happening in the United States. And I think that fractiousness gets in the way of your and my right. dream of getting back to the liberalism we grew up with and we all thought was gonna happen. Right. So let me end with this. Lionel Trilling's book, The Liberal right. Imagination, right. starts with his saying, there is only liberalism in the United States. There is no other theory. That he said it in 50 when McCarthy was, right. was, was is a bit right. odd, but it's, in his view, there was only one point of view. Here we are today where you have to, you're on the defensive for being a liberal because they call us left, right. and left is a presumptively dismissive right. label. So, I mean, where how do you have a conversation with people who aren't listening? So, raised so much. Let me try and respond to 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 some of it. First, I think that the there's a myth in the United States. The myth of the melting pot has always been that. In practical political terms, identity has always been extraordinarily powerful. We both, Rosie and I, both love American musical theater. And you remember in Of the I Sing, right? Wintergreen for president, Wintergreen for president. He's the man the people choose, loves the Irish and the Jews. And American politics has always been built around identity groups. And Fiorello wonder, was the other yes, one. Yes, Fiorello. Where he yeah. went around to all of the... And Fiorello, LaGuardia's great advantages. Uh, uh, mayor of New York, as he spoke every language yeah. that people in New York spoke, including Yiddish. Yiddish, including I know. Italian. So, in fact... Identity groups have always been central to American identity. In return, I'd add, you know, having, having been a kind of binational born in the States but raised here in Canada and raised in the, in the idea of the Canadian mosaic, which you just described, right, that there are Icelandic Canadians and, and Jewish Canadians, Ukrainian Canadians, but French Canadians, obviously, and, and uh, English Canadians. But that idea of the respecting identity, just as in the United States, the truth is, is that there have always been powerful identity groups. In Canada, there's always been an enormously powerful common character, which we easily overlook. The reason we can have such confident, specific groups, uh, Jews or Icelanders or, or in between, is exactly because it, they exist within an understood social compact, right. 
where, where it's those, integration yes, exactly. rather than assimilation. Exactly. But we all understand there are institutions like the courts of Canada that we can turn to and rely on to be fair arbiters of the of whatever of friction that would come up. And as somebody who grew up in Quebec and still thinks of Montreal as his hometown, we all know what near things we had, right, in seeing that country come apart exactly out of nationalist, identitarian sentiment in, in Quebec and persists to this day. We're never... Uh, for good or ill, it's not something we're ever going to escape. So it seems to me that, in fact, when you look at the two countries as they actually are, the similarities are at least as great as those as those differences. The United States is a powerfully identitarian country, and Canada is a country, and it's one of the reasons I love it, that has implanted within it a model of uh, liberal institutions, what I, as I like to call them. Uh, you know, yes, all of the think things that's better. rather than democratic, rather than democratic, liberal institutions universities, um, uh, the free press, festivals like this one in which people of very different backgrounds and kinds can come together and share the experience of great literature, great poetry, and make new sense out of them uh, for, each, uh, for each generation. And the, you know, the other thing I'd say, and so therefore I think that we're, in, we're struggling with very similar things, though they're differently articulated. In, in the two countries. The other thing I'd say, and if I have grounds for hope, and I'm not sure that I do, since the, one of the most thriving genres of uh, political writing is the 3 a.m. letter to your spouse. You know, I'm sure you wrote many of those in your life. Were no, you awake? No, he was already awake. <laughs> he was already <laughs> Well, I have to awaken my Icelandic Canadian wife and say, are you awake? Are you awake? I am now, dear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then you start saying, you know, I'm just in despair because of, of what I see. But when you, when you try and rise from that despair with coffee at 8 a.m., uh, the truth is, is that in this country, as in the United States, the, uh, it, we emphasize the failures of communication, the, the inability of people to, to debate. But if you look at where most Americans actually are, it couldn't come clearer than in the one you didn't mention, Rosie, because it's such a contradiction to the supposedly libertarian uh, hegemony of the United States, which is abortion rights and reproductive rights. There's a case you where mean the former, for, yes, former but, abortion right, rights. But there's a case where the supposedly libertarian ideology of the American right becomes wildly coercively statist. Right? You know, you they can't the government can't tell you whether or not you can own AR-15, but they can literally form a pregnancy police to make sure you're not crossing the state border to pursue an abortion in another state. So that's a, right. And those laws so far in every way we can test them in political elections are wildly unpopular. That whole, that, this, that decision. But it's the, going to end up at the court. And the court's going to find it. And the court is going to say this was, this was the precedent that we set. But let me ask you a question. When you, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where our despair is coming from. You're younger than I am, but we both went through the same kind of evolution. So the wonderful Canada we now know, I just finished doing the audio book of a reissue of None is Too Many, which was my husband's book about uh, the Canadian government keeping, Refusing the, Jews out keeping in, the Jews before. out. And it was government policy, anti-Semitic government policy. We couldn't get into the country till 1950. Uh, because your family, right. my family, because dur during from 33 to 1948, the government had a policy of excluding Jews. Then it became government policy in our lifetime. Suddenly, uh, we had the declaration of, of uh, 
Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We had the Genocide Convention. We had the UN. We had, uh, which kind of ended with the death of, oh, my God, I can't remember. Hammerschild. Hammerschild. We were on an inexorable climb towards better and more inclusion in this country. Uh, we figured out that we had left women behind. We changed it in the 70s, by both in the courts and in the legislature. We figured out much too late with, I think, the Berger inquiry that we had been ignoring the indigenous people because he invited the press to come and join him on the McKenzie pipeline thing. We figured out that persons with disabilities were being totally excluded. We passed laws, uh, and we did the same thing for race. So it seemed to be, for our generation and I'm now 77, that there was going to be an, a, a trajectory since, since we came to Canada in 1950. It just got wider, better, bigger, and more understanding. There seemed to be a consensus. Whether that holds in Canada, I don't know, I hope. But in the United States, it was also a trajectory towards more and better. And you talked about Plessy versus Ferguson. It came from the courts too in those days. Plessy was a decision uh, in 1896 that the American Supreme Court gave that said it was okay to have separate railway cars. Reinforcing apartheid in the, in the southern states. Segregation basically. was okay. Whenever we talk about the role of the courts, I say to students, it was 1954 before the court decided Brown versus Board of Education. Was it okay? for 60 years to go by, for uh, blacks in America to have to wait to decide whether or not they could sit at the same lunch counter? Why, what is there? So in the United States, unlike Canada, it was, uh, it was and is a war where the courts were the good guys. There was also a trajectory and then it stopped. And that's what terrifies me. How did it stop? How did something that seemed so deeply embedded, our, our path towards liberalism, Arnold's sweetness and light, humanized knowledge, what, what took away the oxygen from what seemed to be the only truth? So one of the things I've, I've said once that has been cited since, I don't, I don't say many of those things that are often that cited since, is that in the United States, one of the, the basic engines of uh, social life is that the left or the liberals like want um, uh, political victories and get only cultural victories and the right wants uh, cultural victories and gets only political victories. And one of the things that I think is driving America is that the description you're making of, uh, of an ever expanding realm of rights remains largely true. You know, I have a, a daughter that my same daughter, Olivia, who's in love She's with incredible. The, she is, she is remarkable. She is. She, and she's, she's gorgeous. She looks just like me. It's amazing. I'm <laughs> uncanny. Why are you laughing? She, I, she worships. That's rude, Tony. That's not a nice audience. She worships Rosie. And she's in love with a woman. And she is planning their wedding. And they're planning it in the most romantic imaginable terms, right? And if you go on her um, Pinterest page, all you see are these beautiful images of 
of gay weddings that she's taking part in. She's wise and, and smart though she is, I don't think she fully internalizes the fact that the very possibility of having a public gay wedding is brand new, basically, not just in terms of Canada and the United States, but in terms of humanity at large, right? The idea that we would protect the rights of sexual minorities in law, right? We would say you cannot discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation. Uh, homosexuality has existed in countless, uh, in every culture, but almost always if it's tolerated, it's only tolerated clandestinely, right? No, never officially. So we've made, that's an, an instance of the incredible progress, and I, I use that word without, without scare quotes around it, that we have made in expanding the circles of compassion that are open to people. But that is a very threatening not that specifically, but the whole business of opening the circles of compassion is very threatening, is perpetually threatening In to the people. United States. So here's the other difference. But, okay, go ahead. Just, yeah. just gay marriage, for instance. We didn't have any legislation protecting sexual orientation in Canada. In 1992, the Court of Appeal, not me, but three of my colleagues, said that the Section 15 on Equality, which had analogous grounds... Uh, equality means freedom from, discrimination in. And by the way, Americans think every distinction is discrimination. They don't get it. So uh, a court said sexual orientation was included. That was 1992. Then we had a court, an Ontario Court of Appeal case saying the anal intercourse provision was unconstitutional for teenagers. Then we had a case saying pension benefits which could only go to um, this was in 98 now. So 95 was anal intercourse. 98 was pension benefits could only go to same to same sex. That's a very funny sentence, Opposite. by the way, Rosie. 95 was anal intercourse. 98 was pension benefits. <laughs> they do go hand in hand sometimes. And then, and then in the early 2000s, court, court of appeal across the country started saying gay marriage. The very first case I heard on the Supreme Court of Canada, 2004, unanimous decision, nine nothing, gay marriage. So 1992, nine nothing, right, yeah. nine nothing. 1992, it starts in the courts. 2004, it ends with the Supreme Court of Canada, and the waters closed on that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Morgenthaler was abortion couldn't be decided by the legislatures because it was very contentious and parliamentarians have to go back to the public every four years. And if the public doesn't like what you did, you're out of office. Judges don't have to worry about that. So Morgenthaler, Supreme Court of Canada, 1989, abortion is um, unconstitutional. Bans on abortion, that's over. The water's closed. Nothing closes in the United States. Abortion is still an issue, as you know, and has now been reinstituted. Gay marriage, is it, it took forever. And a little case here, a little case there, then Oberfell, wow. Many years after, the progression in Canada, the ease with which the fertility of the soil in which those decisions landed made them accepted. Nothing gets, it is a polarization, Adam, that's frightening. And I don't, I don't, I mean, we are so similar in so many ways. We have the core liberal values, I think, but we are different in other ways. And I, I don't really know what future there is if you don't even accept Brown versus 
board, I think, is still contentious right. in the South. So, so two thoughts on that. One is, is that um, if you want to persuade me that Canada is a model democratic country and we should, I wrote a piece once called Why Couldn't We Be Canada in the New Yorker about, remember, about the American Revolution. So I'm, I, you're selling past the clothes. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that's true. The, the other part I'd make, and to the degree that I, I don't mean to sound like the, one of the tepid liberals who I, I, um, I wrote the book uh, against in a way, but I do think one of the crucial things to, that we need to recognize is that effective liberalism involves coalition building. I mentioned Bayard Rustin right before, and Rustin's key insight was that African Americans could not uh, advance, could not it, it, secure their own rights outside a coalition of like-minded people. And that's one of the struggles that's been true about American liberalism since its beginning. Frederick Douglass, the greatest of that all was, Americans. That was a right, wonderful part of the book. Um, was, uh, had a hard time signing on to women's suffrage, right? Because he thought that the condition of black men in America was so... Uh, uh, oppressed that if you couldn't secure enfranchisement for those men, why were white women, middle class women, uh, uh, worried? We all have those those limits, right? We're in the middle now of the debates about trans identity, right? And some of us think, well, that's a, a minority issue. That's such a minority issue. Why do we need to make it central? And yet, that's exactly the way that that the the liberal coalition, I'll say without apology, has grown. We need to do better work in that way, uh, respecting and understanding. Uh, one of the things that's true about the civil rights movement that, and Brown versus Board and so on is that that was, for good or ill, in large part, a religious movement. It was rooted in the black church. And without the the coalition between secular progressives and the black Christian church, it never would have taken place. So the business of excluding any group from being part of uh, a coalition of expanding circles of compassion is a huge mistake. It's why a, a totally unglamorous workaday hack politician like Joe Biden is someone I greatly respect because exactly because instinctively and through the acquired skill of a career politician, he has put together a coalition that extends from uh, African Americans to African Americans who are marched for Black Lives Matter to suburban women in Georgia who can't bear the uh, the the idea that uh, the head of the Republican Party is a man who has already been found liable as a rapist, which is true. Um, and so, building those coalitions is the is the responsibility of democratic of of liberal minded people. And to the degree that we are intolerant or unduly purist about who we want in our coalition, is the degree to which we we disable ourselves. The other thing I'd say is, is that, um, and this is something you can speak about with more eloquence than I can, is that- I can't speak about <laughs> anything with more eloquence than you well, can. This you, you, were, you were born eloquent. I mean, I'm, your, I'm the head of the lifetime. Women's Auxiliary of Adam Gopnik. <laughs> it's, I, mean. it's a, it's a, I come, as you know, from a big Jewish family with six brothers and sisters who were arguing from the moment I can remember, all I can remember- is eight people arguing. And like, nobody finishes a sentence, And nobody right? gets to finish a sentence unless you do it. All I can remember from my child is eight people arguing all the time about everything. And so having my own microphone and... <laughs> so the, the, the point I was going to make is we can only have uh, uh, liberal institutions if we have a preceding idea of criminality, right? There's some kinds of behavior that we simply don't allow into our, our circles of conversation, right? 
you bring a gun to a Monopoly game, you are not playing a new kind of Monopoly. You're just not playing Monopoly, right? You go directly to jail. And I think that reinforcing those limits, um, and it's what, to be, to be blunt and specific, it's what this crisis moment in American life is about, holding Donald Trump responsible, not for holding views we don't agree with. That's essential, necessary, fundamental to a liberal democracy. But for holding, but for attempting to use violence to hold on to power, that's the one thing that a liberal democracy cannot tolerate for a second. And it's, a, it's essential. That's why those indictments are essential to the, to the progress. Not, and you cannot say this too often, not because we rule out particular political views. We accept the necessity of, a very, of an incredibly broad spectrum of political views, but they can never be enforced by violence or they can never be dictated by violence. But you know, the one thing that, and I raise it in the book because it's uh, um, directly, and it's about, I cite you in it, the one place where you and I differ most fundamentally. Fundamentally, it's about questions of free speech. I tend to be a, a follower of John Stuart Mill, who believed in about as absolute an idea of free speech as you can have. Even the ugliest and the nastiest and the most disgusting ideas should still be freely entertained, if only to be refuted, because only by hearing, only by reading Mein Kampf do we understand uh, the nature of Nazism. And we shouldn't ban the book. We should welcome the book, read it, and refute it. You feel otherwise, I know, and have written eloquently and, and ruled uh, eloquently. Okay, can I go back, though, to Please. the coalition Please. building? And you tell me if, if I'm off base with this. It struck me that something happened in the United States in 1994 with Newt Gingrich and the contract with for America. Mm. Contract where, on America. Contract on, <laughs> yeah. Where conversation ended right. and one side was holding the other side hostage. It was a new kind of, it, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was also masterful in People were always very good at managing the politics of the United States and the Senate and Congress. But something happened there that ended up being the Tea Party and then now the Freedom Caucus, where there is not a willingness. You can get a coalition of people on your side and they get a coalition of people on their side. But what you're talking about and what's crucial is the ability to sit down where both sides, an Eisenhower kind of... Um, approach where both sides can sit down and the extremes are excluded from the debate and it's what do you get for common cause. And religion is another example. It used to be the black churches were part of the engine of social change. I think a very good argument could be made now that one of the most destructive elements in the United States today is that the desire of Christianity white Christianity to impose its religious truth on everyone else. So we've gone from religious minorities having the right to exercise their minority position, notwithstanding the views of the majority, to, according to this Supreme Court and many courts, and the views of that political party, that particular religious minority gets to impose its truth on other religions. So it's a it's turned upside down all of the things that we had thought about and that we believed in. Um, what was your question? Um, free speech. Free, free speech. speech and free speech. Oh, yeah. So I would say today, starting with Mein Kampf, 
being able to buy it today would be fine. I don't have a problem with that. I have this historic problem. Almost every um, massacre of people who are different started with words. Uh, Mugasera called the Tutsis cockroaches, and they were massacred. The Serbians were dehumanized before they were massacred. The Jews, striker, were dehumanized by the Nazis before they were killed. To think that speech isn't a powerful weapon of destruction, to me, misses the point about human nature. You can, Mencken said, you can never go broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. <laughs> there, there is a willingness to believe what you don't understand as true. So my view growing up in Canada in the 50s and 60s is, I mean, the 60s, everything was okay. We were, everything was about change. Everything was about allowing new forms of truth to emerge. Women were no longer just housewives, although you couldn't be disrespectful. They were doing what the only choice they had at the time, but now girls could be whatever they wanted. All of those changes that you talked about were happening. What, what wasn't happening, though, was the disappearance of discrimination. And if you allow people to say things that are harmful to somebody else's ability to have a job, to work, to, um, to function as society, I think just as we have limits on libel, I mean, having this conversation about free speech without realizing there's a whole network of law that protects people from having their reputations well, harmed. That limits free speech in advance. Says, Absolutely. Yes. Right. You cannot say, you, you can write a book and say right. whatever you want. You can write a newspaper column, but they're very careful about making sure they don't defame people. Somehow, when you're talking about discrimination, you can say awful things about, about gays or about Jews or about blacks or women, why is that okay? That is libel to the group. So this is the other big difference between the Americans and the Canadians. <laughs> Canada has no trouble with groups because we started as two different groups, distinct uh, and coming together. With, with as no people. myth of assimilation. Right. right. So you can't pretend that people aren't affected because they are categorized as part of a group. So not all women feel that they're hurt when somebody, somebody bullies you on the internet. But if you are a woman who feels vulnerable, then that's harmful. I don't have the slightest difficulty with the argument, yeah, but somebody's got to draw the line. Mm. Of course, <laughs> that's what judges are for. You have to make distinctions in a modern society and you have to not be afraid to make distinctions and to say, this is wrong, this is not wrong. So it argues actually for a certain approach to judging, which I can now say it's there in my judgments. Canada's approach to judging had been, has been, we answer the question. We don't take an incremental point, uh, approach. Well, maybe for 16 weeks, maybe for 12 weeks, um, we don't say, well, maybe on railway cars, but not on this. We say, here's the answer. Abortion shouldn't be criminalized. Gay marriage should be accepted. We make the big pronouncements. 
when it comes to speech, we go through the matrix to see whether this speech harms a group. Can you have pamphlets that make fun of gays and say they drown babies? Why? Is that okay? How does that contribute to what Mill's book on speech? He didn't anticipate the harms that could come from discriminatory speech. They didn't really have even a concept of discrimination when he was writing that book. So he was writing about being, liberty was being free from the government. About political ideas. Political ideas. It was never what it's become in the United States, its own religion. This picture has more speech rights than than some other people do. Everything has speech rights. And they transform gay rights. The latest two decisions on the right to have invitations. I don't want to make wedding invitations for gays. I don't want to decorate a cake for gays. That's really free speech? Seriously? This is so ridiculous. You have to, as a private, you are somebody who has limits on your rights when you're a member of society. And that limit is you cannot discriminate. That's part of being a member of a, of a liberal society. What? So the answer to the question, Adam, and I have this debate with, with my son, who's now <laughs> working for um, a network in the United States. He's become very much, you have to let this, let let this kind of play out, but that's because he's a lawyer for uh, a network that right. for a comedian, right? And he he pushes the comedian. Oh no, no! <laughs> okay. I don't want to go home. This is so great. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll hold them off. We'll hold these off. Okay. So, I think as a comedian making a joke about something that may cross the line, give him or her, a, give them a pass. A politician, somebody in a newspaper, don't say, psychologist, Rosie, don't say. (laughs) So I won't. (laughs) I think you have to understand that there are consequences for your words, and I've never been embarrassed to say the lines have to be drawn. Um, I, it's hard for me to argue with that, but let me just try before we engage the audience into, in the, in this conversation to, to say what I would imagine John Stuart Mill, where he living in this hour might, might counter. Um, there certainly there's a range of speech. Holocaust denial, right. Is a, is an, is an obvious one where almost every civilized country, France, where I lived for a long time, certainly, uh, prevents it from being shared exactly because not only is it harmful, but it's a denial of history. It involves uh, institutionalized lying of a kind that seems that seems wrong. At the same time, I think what Mill would say is is that the the risk on the other side is that because the the spectrum of what is and is not acceptable opinion has changed all the time, that if we enshrine in law the idea that if someone is, hurt, damaged, harm by speech, that we that we run the risk of uh, overprotecting people who are deserving of criticism, to take your oh, example. politician? For sure. Right. I think that's well, very Well, gay. let me take a more, okay. a more difficult example, right? Exactly what you were talking about. Uh, churches, as a, as a secularist, let's say, secularists would want to reserve the right to mock and belittle 
the iconography of Christianity or of Judaism or of Islam. That was a case in- Galileo, in, for example. Exactly, Galileo or um, Giordano Bruno or the cartoonists of Charlie Hebdo right. in, the, right. in France who were murdered for mocking Muhammad. Um, we want to protect their right I agree. to hurt, to hurt in quotes and I harm people, the other people's beliefs because the right to mock religion, to indulge in sacrilege is one of the vital modern rights. So that's, I think, would be Mel, Mill's, Mill's reproach to, to, to that idea. But let me move on. Let me pull the can and allow all of you to interrogate both of us. Um, for each of you, what is your level of concern that in all parts of North America, we are trending towards an environment in which a state such as Margaret Atwood's Gilead in uh, The Handmaid's Tale becomes possible in some form, even if to a lesser extent than in The Handmaid's Tale. I'm sorry, I didn't need to annotate that. It was annotated here. And uh, The Testaments. <laughs> so I'm an optimist in this sense that I think that the the broad middle ground of acceptance, we're talking about before, right, of uh, I should turn this way a bit, of uh, uh, sexual minorities and of women is so deeply entrenched now in throughout North America, throughout most of the Western world, that it's uh, unrealistic or fortunately unrealistic to imagine that that could be reversed on a massive scale. What concerns us, I think, and what I think is a real concern is that uh, is living in an increasingly uh, stratified society in which the rights that are relatively secure for women in Toronto or New York are not secure for women in Oklahoma or uh, uh, Texas even, and that our rights that are secure for uh, upper middle class women are not secure for poor women at, at all. And that I think is a genuine uh, concern. This is something that is actually happening as we speak, what's happening in the United States about uh, reproductive rights, that they're, that for the most part, knock wood, uh, a well-off woman can still seek reproductive freedom, can still have reproductive freedom, but a poor black woman in Oklahoma has very limited uh, rights to her own reproductive freedom, even if she's been raped or uh, 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 assaulted, been the victim of incest or so on. So I think that, that that would be my response to it, is I'm not worried so much about the apocalyptic vision of women in long dresses and red hats. I am worried about the, the what what frightens us, the, the scary things is always the mini apocalypses, right? Where you wake up one day a and think- A thousand small yeah, apocalypses, small, small, right? A thousand small insanities, yeah. exactly. Uh, I'm not as sanguine about the United States. I mean, I remember when, when Atwood wrote the book, it didn't get a whole lot of attention the way it increasingly has, and she wrote it because she had a vision. She saw something coming that most of the rest of us never dreamed was possible. I think just to feel hopeful because some of the states are still protecting women's rights is, is wonderfully optimistic. I'm terrified because so many of them are restricting women's rights and doing it shamelessly and, and doing it, as we talked before, when you've got a democratic checks and balances system where if the excesses of the courts can be corrected by the legislature and the excesses of the legislature can be corrected by the courts, where you don't have that in the United States and you have a system of federalism that's bizarre to me, the idea that you that you have some 
constitutional rights, depending on where you live, is crazy. Think about it. <laughs> like, so you can have gender equality in Alberta, but you can't have it in Prince Edward Island. I mean, it, think about that in Canada. So their whole governance structure is bizarre. And again, it's this religious uh, infusion of into public policy, which undermines progress and all of the all of the progress that's been made. The idea to me that in 19, um, in the early 60s, this was an issue, I got it. I understood. I mean, as you said, gay rights were still against the law, abortion was against the law. That in 2023, there are serious conversations about whether the state can tell a woman she can be pregnant or not. I, that's apocalyptic to me mm. in any state. Mm. I, I, I hear you and I don't, I, I don't disagree. The one thing I would say, if again, I'm, I am looking for signs of hope, like a, a, like a Montreal or staring and looking for a crocus in speaking, March. Speaking um, of Quebec. Yes. Yes. Um, I would still say that it, what's as, as discouraging and as frightening as the turn on reproductive rights, women's rights, to be blunt, uh, has been the reaction, the very powerful reaction of women insisting on reclaiming and re retaining their own rights is, is equally strong. The thing I'd say, though, is, is that the problem is, is when you have a, a, a court that's determined to do the work of the legislature exactly. and is determined to dictate. There's no checks right, and balances. About, right, that, that's a function of having a a, a renegade Supreme Court and how we we change that is not renegade in the sense that I don't don't agree with them, but in the sense that no longer represents the the uh, democratic majority. You know, one of the striking things about Brown versus Board or about Roe v. Wade is that they were strongly majoritarian decisions. One was nine zero, if I remember correctly. Brown and Roe v. Wade Brown was... Brown event was 7 nothing, Right. And it was only majoritarian because Vincent, the chief justice, right. died. Uh -huh. He was replaced by Earl Warren, right. who hadn't exactly had a great record because he locked, locked up Japanese right. Americans. Um, and he, was, he decided that this was an important thing uh, to happen. And in this, for the lawyer... Are there lawyers in the room? <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. So, so what I'm about to tell you will shock you if, when you think about it. They ended discrimination in the United States in Brown versus Board of Education in six pages. So lawyers know hundreds of pages are written by judges because, right. I mean, they think, because they know how to use a computer. I write by hand, so <laughs> mine are short. Uh, but in six pages, he decided that it was no longer appropriate. But it was the serendipitous composition of the Supreme Court in 1954. Okay, right. Would not have happened in 53. Um, I think Jackson had a heart attack mm -hmm. and didn't write mm -hmm. the dissent he was going to. Anyway, people have written about this. Right. But the idea that it was the way it was on our court when we did gay marriage or assisted dying, where we sat around and collaboratively debated and thrashed it out, was not what, what happened. happened. It was Earl Warren's political genius, genius and the timing of, of who was there. So I don't have, I, I don't feel the hope and I have a granddaughter growing up in the United mm. States. So I'm nervous 
about what's going to happen to her. Now she's in New York, which is its own country. Right. So I'm not. I'm not. It's as, a city state unto itself. It that? is as the Steinberg cartoon shows. <laughs> yes, it's the center it's of the it. universe. Uh, but for the rest of the United States, I don't know where it's where that push is going to come from. I'm like this about the next election. Yeah, unfortunately. And, I- and you know what's interesting? Every Canadian knows everything about American politics. We stayed home every time there was a primary. Right. Really? But by elections, I don't know. We could miss one or two of those. <laughs> in Canada, you mean? So, yeah. In Canada. And nobody in the United States. I mean, how many times have I gone to the, oh, you're at Supreme Court. How many judges are there on the Supreme Court? I can name all nine of yours. Right. They don't even know how many judges are on ours. Right. Which is true of Canada, too. But this quiet little institution that nobody knows about is a really pretty good place to to make sure that it exercises checks and balances. It's gone in America, Adam. So I, I so worry. I don't know. They're young, these these people. And Obama, respectfully, allowed a ton of vacancies to accrue. Trump came in and just went boom, 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 which you're allowed to do. When you elect a president, you elect the person who's going to pick the judges. This uh, That's a truism of politics. You elect the person who's going to put the people in place who are going to make judicial and uh, public policy. I, I'd, I'd add only to the comment about Obama, who I greatly admire in so many ways, that one of the truths is, is that Obama, to a degree that people didn't understand because he seemed like a charis- he was a charismatic figure, was a proceduralist. And proceduralism is both the strength and the great weakness of liberalism in power. That is the belief that you there should be a procedure that you follow, right? And my understanding, and I'm, it may be faulty, is that they had a procedure in place for judging judges, right? For choosing choosing judges. And it slowed down the process horrifically. And that, and that as a consequence, I, one of the things that worries me, and we've seen it with Merrick Garland as well, who's also a proceduralist of that kind, right? Very slow-footed as a consequence. And that that is why, you're absolutely right, and that is why it takes years to find out. We have such a belief in procedure as being justice that people don't get access to justice because you can't go to court if you're not a multimillionaire. I mean, if you're a custody case, you can have grandchildren by the time you find out where the the kids are going to live. And it's because we are wedded to procedure instead of right. common sense. Yes, I, so I think that the proceduralism of liberalism right. is its Achilles heel, and we've seen that playing out. It's also something that's very positive sometimes. It says, we're going to do it the right way. We're In not going to do it. criminal law? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Because you've got the power of the state against the individual. individual right. But in a dispute between two individuals, why do you need a book this mm-hmm. thick? Am I right? Yeah. Lawyers? Yes. What right. for? I mean, it's so silly. Just they want to know. We in the family court, we developed a system. We would bring in the lawyers and to the judge and we would say, what's this case about? Before we would have a trial. Tell me your best case. They would tell us. I said, here's what I would do if I were hearing the case. And of course, once you hear it in in chambers, you're not going to hear the actual trial. Go out, talk to your clients, tell them what an authoritative, authoritative voice things would happen. They would come back, 90% of them settled settled, without a trial. And then if they did want a trial, they got in front of another judge. But it's just, tell me your story. Yes, That's what people want to do. But instead, you need four days to to 
process this document and then 10 days this and one six months to have a uh, another hearing on a technical measure and it's five years right. anyway so you're right proceduralism yeah. is the enemy the, of justice is, yes sometimes and, the, sometimes and the achilles heel of liberalism as proponents of social democracy my partner and i encountered joe clark informally and he talked about what was accomplished by working across political lines party lines i'm sure here he lamented the loss of this and I would like to hear your thoughts about the rise of partisanship. I took the first one last time. I think that's a boy's question. Because <laughs> <laughs> girls aren't partisan. <laughs> I think that the best, the, the two things I think are true. And I, I always, my children mock me because I always begin every answer with two things. Um, I think that uh, in the United States, at least, which I can speak about, though I fear it's coming true in Canada, we have nationalized parties of opinion for the first time. For the most of, of American history, uh, party labels were quite flexible so that there were liberal Republicans in New York State, for instance, New York City, who were well to the left of, uh, of most Democrats. And you had, exactly, Jacob Javits. Um, uh, and you had uh, uh, conservative Democrats who were well to the right of uh, of most Republicans. And that was a healthy thing of a kind because it meant that that kind of narrow, intense, not every issue was always nationalized. And that's a that's a healthy thing. Local politics should have a different flavor than than the national politics. That's no longer true. It's partly a result of uh, the consolidation of the media, and it's partly the result of, consolidation of opinion. But I think that that is an unhealthy thing. The, again, searching for little signs of, of hope. Um, there's an, you know, somebody once said there's a, there's an official Congress in the United States and there's a secret Congress. And the secret Congress involves all of the Midwestern Republicans who were, you know, uh, lawyers and insurance salesmen, their previous life working together with all the big city democratic legislators, uh, uh, and finding solutions to specific problems more frequently than we allow ourselves to know because they're never particularly publicized. And significant work gets done on on that front. You know, the thing I have felt most uh, uh, passionately about, the specific political issues that I've written most passionately about have been gun control and uh, incarceration uh, because and the scandal of incarceration in America. And real progress has been made on uh, incarceration and on bail reform and such things in the past 10 years, genuinely cutting across party lines. Not always for the most honorable of reasons. It means that Republicans get to make budget cuts and Democrats see fewer people of their, fewer of their constituents in prison. But nonetheless, those changes do take place. So I think that there's a secret level of bipartisanship that's possible, even if it isn't as, as heavily publicized. As a as partisan divide, so Joe Clark to me was was is one of the great people and was a wonderful prime minister, mm -hmm. not for very long, but he I I, I have right. a lot of admiration for him and for his wife Maureen McDear. They represented for me growing up in Ontario, Adam. When you were growing up in Montreal, uh, we had John Robarts, we had Bill Davis, Roy McMurtry was a minister of justice. You could not tell the difference between, and, and I would say Brian Mulroney, you couldn't tell the difference in philosophy between a, a progressive conservative, they were progressive, and a liberal. I was appointed a judge in 1976 by Bill Davis to the Court of Appeal by Brian Mulroney to the Supreme Court of Canada by Paul Martin. 
So my only liberal appointment <laughs> was, was, Paul, was Paul Martin. At the, the most end. short-lived of the prime ministers, right? Yeah. But he was great too. But right. but I, all I'm saying is, and many of my colleagues were also appointed by two different parties. That's really the, the ideal of partisan. Right. as we grew up understanding it, that it was a small p right. partisanship. And you worked across party lines for the public interest. That's the term that's missing from the public right. discourse, right. right? Public interest. Who Nobody seems to care. They care about their particular public. I think in Canada to date, we still pretty well have that. Right. I don't know what the future holds. I mean, do you, Yogi Berra said predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. <laughs> um, but what I saw in the United States, starting with Gingrich, right. and then particularly because I'm, I'm, my area of particular concern is the courts, when Marlick, Merrick Garland was held up by Mitch McConnell for a year because you don't want a lame duck appointment, and we all knew was he bullshit. was making right. it up. And then Coney Barrett was appointed when Trump had 20 minutes left in his the presidency. voting was already underway, actually, yeah. Was it? Yeah. You saw that became a new kind of partisanship. It didn't become, it probably it was, was a new no. kind of partisanship. So I know debates were going on behind the scenes on the budget this time, and everybody was so relieved that Kevin McCarthy was able to work something out with, with Biden. But he still had that rump group, and he was still afraid of what was going to happen. And then the, Demo the Democrats had Manchin, right. not reliable, Simon, what's her name, Cinnamon? Cinema. Cinema. Sheila. So there isn't that loyalty to to the transcendent public that that we grew up with right. in the United States. And here, I'm not going to be smug because I don't know what it will be, but it scares me to think that we may that we may be at Imitate risk the American of model. losing right. it because there's no plexiglass between our countries. And sometimes the fumes come up. <laughs> and I just, I just hope we're strong enough to, to stay stalwartly what we have been as a country, the values. And that's, that's the one thing about this book. You come away thinking you cannot replace decency, dignity, uh, mensch. You've got to be... You've got to be, and, and fairness is the other word. Right. You, yes. This is all, liberalism is about fairness. It's about What's fairness? Partisanship is about me, 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 me. It's solipsism. Right. It's, if it's well, good for me, it's got to be good for you. Right. Yeah, the point I was trying to make exactly is that the proceduralism in which liberalism gets enacted only has value if it's a reflection of values, values. of values yeah. that are, no, that's that, the precedes, genius of the that book. precedes it. Um, uh, another question here. Um, uh, uh, well, here's a good, here's an interesting question that I've, uh, where is it now? I lost it. It was a good question here. Oh, someone says, uh, one question we have is great outfit, Rosie. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole. Elastic waistbands are the way of the future. <laughs> Uh, somebody, Not that I need it, but... And, and somebody writes here, great shoes, Adam, here as well, too. That's, hey, Martha! That's putting it in for my, my wife, who's very a partisan of these shoes. It's her one Remember her one when you cost. couldn't tell women how they looked? Right. I remember thinking, who told you that? 
why do you think we dress up? Yes. <laughs> so somebody would say, I like your outfit. I mean, rem- feminism in the 70s and 80s, pe- the, you know, they everybody wore the same outfit, little hairy Rosen suits with the with the tie and the and the mm-hmm. the pleated skirts. And I, what are you doing? This is you look like the guys. And then and now lawyers, tell me if I'm wrong, all the women wear dark suits navy blue suits. None of the women judges on the Supreme Court dress like that. <laughs> but the law firms still have an expectation that the girls will look like undertakers. <laughs> <laughs> and the boys have ties that are brighter than anything that the women wear. It's anyway, so thank you for the question. question. I'm glad you can still be a girl <laughs> and be a feminist <laughs> and be smart. You're, it's okay. Here, here. Here, here. Here, here's a... Um, why do Americans fear women's rights more than gun control? I don't know. I, so I, let me try, as I say, w- the one subject I've written about, one specific subject, you know, as you said so kindly, Rosie, I basically write about a huge range of Everything. subjects. Everything. And you and, do it all, like, there isn't, sorry, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is my envy coming up. Everything you write about, you write with an authority that is... Holy astonishing. Pretend, but it is wholly artificial, right? It is, oh, is it? You make yes, it totally. up? I make it up. It's like, I make it up. It's That's like, oh, why you have I no footnotes. It. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. I just take a dive and I, and how do you know this, Adam? My wife asks and I say, mm, I'm making a good guess. But the one subject that I have written about most persistently is, uh, is gun violence in, in the States. Because for me, one of the great dividing lines insufficiently underlined in America was the Newtown massacre uh, in Connecticut, because that was a moment it made it plain that even if you were blowing away small children, uh, nobody was going to, the the right wing, the Republican party wasn't going to move on it. And that there was a license to massacre had been granted. I still find it uh, traumatic. And I struggle exactly because part of our duty as uh, liberal minded people is to uh, empathize and understand views unlike our own. And I've come to understand. <laughs> You're more tolerant than I am. I'm, well, that's, that's an important difference I would draw. I, it's, one I, thing that, yeah. it's one thing to understand. It's another thing to tolerate. You don't have to tolerate everything you understand. But I have come okay, to understand. That's, that's good. I have come to understand that for many Americans, for reasons that are... Um, Guns in the home have this incredible fetishistic significance as symbols of autonomy. And in a culture in a, where people feel their autonomy constantly under assault and reduced. Individualism. Yes, exactly. The government oh, should stay out of my right. house. It, but the government should go into your bedroom at the same time. <laughs> into to, your womb. Into your womb. Into your womb. Never mind so the bedroom. The, you know, that's one of the smartest things that's ever been written about, and I will use the word without apology here, about fascism, about extreme right-wing authoritarianism, was written by the great Italian uh, linguist and novelist Umberto Eco, who grew up under fascism in, in Italy. And he said, the thing you have to understand about fascism, and it's generally true about right-wing authoritarianism, not that there isn't an equally insidious form of left-wing authoritarianism, but it has it tends to proceed exactly on dogma and ideology. And the thing about right-wing nationalism is it proceeds exactly on by being arbitrary. That that's part of the nature of of fascism, Echo's point is, is that if it had a coherent ideology that everyone could understand, then you wouldn't need a charismatic leader, right? Because you would all share the understanding. The reason that right-wing authoritarianism needs a charismatic leader 
in a way that left-wing authoritarianism often does not, is exactly because the leader is the only one who can resolve the contradictions through the, through the force of his personality and the... But Stalin was a left-wing. Stalin, is, yes, and, but Stalin's a complicated case, right? Because he was genuinely, there's a terrific book by Simon uh, Montefiore that makes the case that Stalin was a genuine ideologue. He was deeply immersed in in uh, Marxist thought in a way that Mussolini was not a genuine ideologue of anything. He was an improvisational authoritarian. So I think that that's, so when you ask why is this contradiction possible, it's in the nature of right-wing authoritarianism to engage contradictions of that kind because they can only be resolved by the presence of a charismatic leader. I don't know if that's a sufficient explanation, but I think that so there's a, you certainly see it with Trump to be, to use plain blunt English. That is that there is absolutely no coherence in what he believes and doesn't believe. And there is absolutely no logic in the adherence of his base to someone whose values are directly opposed to their own. Someone who's contemptuous of religion, someone who comes from New York City and would, and you could no more get to go out to Akron, Ohio, uh, before he became a politician, then you could get him to, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, I, I can't even find a proper comparison. Um, so that- They the, booed him. Yes. They, Did you yes, know that? Yeah, I saw that. So that chaos is part of the nature of right-wing authoritarianism. It's not a, so you put your finger on a word we haven't talked about that I think is so important in this debate. And it explains the contradiction between something like a libertarian view of government, you can't tell me if I can have guns or not, which the Supreme Court had endorsed in the Heller case right. and constitutionally protected the right to have a gun. So they are doing what they've been told is constitutionally permissible. But the word, Adam, which is so important and I never heard growing up, is ideologue. Yeah. So there's a difference between an era where you've got people who feel very strongly but can still cross over into right. conversations with others and ideologue. Right. And I have now met some. I, I think I was 70 before I met yeah, an ideologue. First ideologue. I'm not kidding. Yeah, right. I'm not kidding. And what do I mean by that? Right. I Because I, I couldn't figure it out. There was just nothing getting through at all. So vigorous disagreement, of course. I mean, you, you right. have it. So I figured out that the the brain, that we have a cerebral basket. Right. And when you hear things and you're open-minded, which you're supposed to be as a judge, what you hear, you're really open and it can change the shape of the basket what, because it's contradicting what's there. What I found was if you are an ideologue, it doesn't matter what you put in that basket. The facts take the shape of the basket mm -hmm. rather than shaping, reshaping the yeah. basket. And so when you're dealing with people, that's why you have the contradiction between government stay out of my house, but go into her womb, right. because it's an ideology. Right. It's not a point of view. It's not a discussion point. Ideologues prohibit the possibility of exchange. And revel in, in illogic in, in many ways. Yeah. Revel, and you're right. Yeah. They not only revel, it's true. Right. No, that's Which what, is another phrase that's kind of homeless. I, I see we're going over time, and I know everyone has to get to lunch. But let me let's do one last question, and then we can and and we can both speak. And, and it's one that it speaks to um, the frailties and weaknesses in, in the 
the, our Of which beloved, you and I know nothing. Uh, no, exactly. No. Of, not of us, but no. of our beloved Canadian Except model. for the elastic waistband. I think that's a sign of frailty. Why do the Means courts I in Canada... Means I don't exercise. Sorry? The, the question is, why do the courts in Canada continue to oppose indigenous rights, uh, equality, if we have acknowledged the mistreatment of the past, i.e. child welfare, and more? I wanted to... Let me take a shot. You can take no, a specific take shot it. No. at it. One of the things, and it's one of the themes of the book, and it's one of the parts of the book that I'm, 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 I hesitate to use proudest of, but I felt most content with. Writers are never proud or happy of, of um, completely proud or happy of their work, but you, there are little passages that you're content with. Is to address the question that we recognize that liberal societies, certainly in the United States, but even Canada, um, have been guilty in the past of grave injustices and terrible cruelties, and we've seen it all reflected in the last couple of years in the becoming more acutely aware than you and I were when we were growing up of the injustices directed at the indigenous peoples of this of this nation. But And what I would say about it is that that's true and that there's no virtue in, not only is there no virtue in denying it, there's a vice in pretending otherwise. But it's one of the distinct features of liberal societies, liberal democratic societies, is that they install a corrective conscience in their software so that instead of trying always to cover up or deny, we say, yes, that was horribly unjust. We did, we participated in things that we profoundly regret in turning the Japanese or uh, uh, kidnapping uh, indigenous kids for, for Catholic schools. Those things were very, those things were just wrong. We have to remedy those things. And we should be unashamed. We should, we should embrace the people who insist on it. Liberalism is a constant process of not just accepting reform, but of embracing reform and recognizing it. And the more that we can install that corrective conscience in our lives and our, in our institutions, not apologetically as, well, we're almost perfect, but we did that wrong, but exactly proudly as to say, yes, we seek out the things that we have done badly and we seek to remedy them as best we can afterwards. And that's a distinct feature of liberal societies. The, it, the Chinese Communist Party right now is not seeking out, seeking to remedy its cruelty to the people of Tibet uh, as we speak. That's something that we have to do or obliged to do, but we should be proud that we have the institutions that allow us to do it. That would be my answer. And I would say that that's a perfect ending for this session. <laughs> and I have nothing to add. Adam, can I just say what a gift you are to the world? You're no. ours, you're theirs, but you're, you're global. And your thinking, your big thinking, your transcendently compassionate, empathetic thinking is a moral guidepost. And I, I just feel so lucky to know you and Martha and Olivia mm -hmm. and to be on this panel with you. We we really don't disagree about anything. And I wish you'd be my colleague on the court. You would have been so much fun. I would have been, I would have been very badly cast as a judge because I would have lost all the briefs on my way to the, I am the most disorganized and chaotic person. And Rosie, I can say without, you know, I, it's not a mutual compliment. It's a, it's, a, it's a simple truth. I have never been as inspired by any friend as I am daily by you and by, as I said, what Olivia rightly identified as your unique mix of analytic intelligence and emotional intelligence. Canada is blessed to have you, and we are blessed to have you as a friend. And so is Harvard. Let me add, and so is Harvard. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming.
A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. The book we have to get. That's Adam. That's Adam's book. That's Adam. I want to seep into Adam's expertise as we seep into the justices. Yeah. I, that's oh, that's so funny because I want I want to seep into Justice Rosalie's <laughs> expertise. She did say differences at the heart of Canada and that Canada has core national values. Yeah, These, it's just scary language, but it can mean something good. And yeah. I think that's the spooky genius of this conversation. Yeah, and I think like how her as a justice of the peace is like she's so entrenched in the system. It's hard to want to align myself with her. <laughs> but That's I have so a hard time disagreeing with her, you know? Absolutely. And I also wonder what it feels like not only to feel entitled, but also to be completely justified in having a public opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the cerebral basket? Mm-mm. Okay, they mentioned the cerebral basket, and it's, and I'm going to get it wrong. So hunt for it when, mm-hmm. when you re-listen. But this idea that our minds... Even if it's just the image that you're met with first. But the idea that the mind carries something and can stretch and and change shape and the initial shape that it holds when it's met with an idea mm-hmm. uh, can bounce or ricochet or feel a certain way mm-hmm. um, and shape someone's long-term forever opinion or ability to change that opinion. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that that exists in this conversation where I don't know if this conversation is about trying to change minds or just having a discussion about what what they wish minds ch- yeah. what they wish minds thought. I think that's what <laughs> I think it's closer to that. I don't think that they are trying to change minds. I think that they're trying to point at how varied our ways of thinking are. Yeah. And that it just like I feel like the conversation ends there not in a bad way, not to say that it it, it you know it's mm-hmm. it's lacking or that it has shortcomings, but I think it's a very educated point at the lay of the land. I also think it walks the walk, walks the talk, talks the walk. Walks the talk. Walks the talk. As they they disagree on things. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that is invited, that isn't about one person changing the other person's mind mm-hmm. in the end. You're totally mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Because they say, well, here's what we disagree on. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about remedy and reform. Not and if- necessarily... It feels so synchron, like uh, so synchronized, regardless of the disagreement between the two of them at various points. You know, mm. I think one of the most impactful lines—it's not a line, but it's a quote. <laughs> one of the lines in the show. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most impactful offerings from Rosalie was, "quote Almost every massacre of people who are different started with words." To think that speech isn't a powerful weapon of destruction misses the point of human nature, end quote. <laughs> I'm like, zoom in on that whole conversation about free speech and what it means. Yeah. And what, where it's defined differently. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget where I heard some of those sentences. I was looking in my closet trying to, I'm moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was organizing stuff and I had to stand still and think. Yes. <gasps> what does Oprah call it? Aha moment. Yes. I had a very similar experience to you. I'm also packing, also moving, end of season things. And yeah, I've, I was I was stopped in my tracks by a lot of the thoughts uh, in this chat. I think another one that really resonated with me is this idea that we are wedded to procedure rather than common sense. Proceduralism is the enemy of justice. We get so caught up, entangled in 
bureaucracy when trying to enact change. Okay, if we're dropping nuggets, this one's for everyone, but maybe especially the actors. I love when they sit, when she talks about, we don't need cautious, <laughs> and, but we don't need insufficiently radical. Ooh. The balance is heroic. Yeah. Okay. It, it's, it's measured. Well, in another quote, speaking of perfection, <laughs> <laughs> this one was great. Okay, yeah. where are we meeting after this? Where are we going? Where did this one leave us? Where is this one? Where are we heading? Oh, we got to go watch the Kate Blanchett movie. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, gosh, yeah. That Adam's in. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's where we're going. Oh, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Adam Gopnik, we're going to see you in this Kate Blanchett movie. Tar. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I wanted to see it so badly. Okay, let's and go. And now all the more reason. <laughs> all right, let's get it. Okay. Let's go. I'll get snacks. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. This event was recorded as part of the Mian Forum in front of a live audience in Lazaridis Hall at the Tom Patterson Theatre in Stratford, Canada. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with the rich mind of theatrical content housed by the Stratford Festival streaming service, Stratfest at Home. It takes you, our listeners, to make this possible. It also takes the help of our dear collaborators. Support for the Mian Forum is generously provided by Kelly and Michael Mian and the T.R. Mian Family Foundation. Original score for the Everyday Forum podcast was provided by Hilary Adams. Production support by Yash Chabria and Chris Von Kleist. Special thanks to Michael Adams, Jennifer Lee, Greg Doherty, Michael Duncan, and Kendallin Bishop. Mian Forum team... Renata Hansen, Mira Henderson, James Hyatt, Danielle Walcott, and forum manager Gregory McLaughlin. Me and forum director, Julie Miles. Associate director of digital content, Jenna Dixon. Finally, thanks to artistic director, Anthony Cimolino, and executive director, Anita Gaffney. <laughs>